Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. If your head is spinning from the news this week, no one would blame you. From massive tech layoffs to midterm elections in the U.S. to Tylenol shortages and hospitals overwhelmed here at home, it's impossible to keep up. So over the next hour, we'll slow things down a little so we can discuss some of the recent news stories and round it out with some lighter segments so we all stay sane. Here's what's coming up. It's possible you missed the news about Pierre Polyev's use of the MGTOW hashtag on his YouTube channel, or perhaps you're not sure what all the fuss is for. So, Samantha Krishnapalle from On Canada Project joins me to discuss why women across Canada, no matter where they sit on the political spectrum, should be concerned about this. This week, we saw unions across the country unite in a show of solidarity not seen in years to push back against the Ontario provincial government's legislation that aimed to take away the bargaining rights of CUPE, but also would have set a precedent for all workers if they got away with it. Laura Walton, president of CUPE OSBCU, joins me to discuss how they got the government back to the bargaining table. Dr. Patricia Wu joins me to chat about the benefits of mushrooms on everything from brain health to immunity support as part of our ongoing series with New Roots Herbal, aimed to educate consumers on the benefits of supplements. Anne Brody is here, and this week we've got a bit of a British focus with a look at Season 5 of The Crown on Netflix, The English, available on Prime Video, which stars the uber-talented Emily Blunt, who also produced the series, and a series on etiquette on Netflix called Mind Your Manners, which hopefully will help return some civility to our society. Finally, and most important to me, is the release of two new Christmas movies coming up this season. The Rooftop Garden is a new novel from the host of the Globe and Mail's The Decibel podcast, Manica Raymond Wilms, which explores timely themes including climate anxiety and the political radicalization of young men. She joins me to share her why for penning her first novel. Finally, Anne Brody had the honor of sitting in on a group interview with the cast of season five on The Crown, which includes Imelda Staunton as Queen Elizabeth, Jonathan Price as Prince Philip, and Elizabeth Debicki as Princess Diana, to name a few of the top talent this season. We'll listen in to a bit of that at the end of today's show. It's another full week at What She Said with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 105.9 The Region. When I was young, I would look in the mirror. Didn't know it then, but now it couldn't be clearer. The news moves fast anymore, so it's possible you either miss the story about Pierre Polyev's use of the MGTOW hashtag on YouTube, or you're not sure what the big deal is. For women, this should be a very big deal, no matter where you sit on the political spectrum. Joining me now to discuss why it matters is Samantha Krishnapalle from On Canada Project. Welcome back, Samantha. Thanks so much for having me here. Let's do a refresher here uh, in case people did miss it or can't remember it because there's a lot going on. Uh, let's unpack the news story. Sure. So essentially in early October, Global News did this exclusive investigation that provided people with this information that the new Conservative Party leader, Pierre, uh, was using hidden tags to appeal to misogynistic men on YouTube for over four years. 
Um, the tag is men going their own way or MGTOW. And hundreds of like peers videos have had that for several years. And I think that this has not got enough attention. Maybe it's because people don't fully understand what the implications are. But I'm so excited for us to unpack that here today. Yeah. And I, I, honestly, I understood it immediately because I work in the space. But it also made me aware. I understand why people may not understand why it matters. Because unless you're uploading YouTube videos and trying to get them in front of a specific audience, you probably don't understand how tags work. So let's talk about why this matters, that he has been doing this. Yeah, so let's think of like hashtags first. It's not exactly like a hashtag, but it is similar. When you're on a social media platform like Twitter or Instagram and you see like hashtag Canada and you click it, you can see everybody else who's talking about Canada that's hashtagged Canada in it. So on YouTube, it's very similar, except for you can hide those tags. So like outwardly, it looks like, you know, you're doing, you're talking about this issue and it's great, but you, you're putting in hidden tags that are super problematic and are appealing to people who are misogynistic, which is what Pierre has been doing with this MGTOW tag. Um, because not only did he use it, but it was hidden. So there's like a clear understanding that this tag should not be used, but still using it to sort of reach out to the type of people that don't think women deserve equality. I think the whole thing is super stressful uh, and quite problematic. Let's let's get into the, that then, because let's talk about the people who would follow that tag. What does it mean? What does it represent? And what is what are their intentions? The MGTOW tag is like a part of this larger movement online called the Manosphere, which we can chat about in a second. But specifically, this tag um, is this like completely false and dangerous belief that society has been corrupted by feminism, resulting in a systemic bias against men and their viewpoints. So people who use this tag feel as if they are like male separatists and seek to remove themselves from a society that has been impacted by women. It's like completely rooted around male supremacy. And that's why it's concerning that knowing that this tag is being used by this community, that the conservative party leader has been using it to reach out and invite those people in to follow him and to engage with him and to under like, you know, vote for him. And I think that's what's really scary because he's aligned himself with these anti-women beliefs. The fact that it's so that it's hidden means he's not willing to say that out loud, that he's courting these people to watch his videos by hiding it. Now, if he was just putting it out in the open, it would be fair for everybody to assess. Right. We could. But because mm -hmm. it's hidden, it means that he doesn't want to be public about courting their votes, perhaps. Yeah. Which is terrifying because we know that the we, we know that like radicalization is happening across our country. Um, and we know that people are invited into these like spaces and these belief systems through people targeting them for it. So it's often like really great human beings who maybe feel like a sense of grievance or a sense of stress around an issue. But instead of really unearthing that, they're courted and welcomed into this like negative space that preys on that and kind of puts you on this pathway to radical violence, uh, which we have seen in Canada already. So I think, I don't know, I think this is all quite scary and it deserves to still be in the media because it's just ongoing. Well, let's talk about his reaction to it then. So Global News did this investigation. It was brought to mm -hmm. light. Uh, it was brought into the House of Commons as a, as, a, as a matter of discussion. 
Uh, and what was Pierre Polyev's uh, response? Yeah, so I think, you know, other MPs from the liberals and the NDP and like just not the conservatives, they tried to hold Pierre accountable. And they were like, look, this is really messed up that you're courting known misogynistic communities to expand your online brand. Um, and instead of like acknowledging it and being like, yeah, this is really messed up. I shouldn't have done this or whatever the case may be. Pierre instead just gave like this sort of weird statement of, I condemn forms of misogyny, including when the PM fired the very first female Indigenous Attorney General, which is like a big sprout of like whataboutism where, you know, they're acknowledging that there's this giant issue. And instead of dealing with it, he's trying to pivot us into a different conversation, which perhaps deserves space to be talked about. Like we can talk about that later. But right now we're talking about the fact that he's been using these tags and there was no accountability. There was no apology. Um, our understanding is that those tags were then removed. But if you've been using them for like four plus years, it's quite scary because the damage has been done now. And, and the way the algorithm works anyway, it's likely those videos will stay rotating in that space for quite mm -hmm. a long time after the tags are removed because that's the way the algorithm works, right? Is, is that the more attention it gets in one space, the more it gets fed into that space. Yeah. And I, I think like that's what's really scary to me as a young woman learning about this. Um, I think like a lot of people remember in 2018, there was like a van attack in Toronto where someone who was part of this like incel space um, drove a car in trying to attack and kill people. And that was their belief system. And it's not like the incel community online is connected to the same community that is the men going their own way tag is a part of, and it's called the Manosphere. And it's this giant community of people with varying beliefs um, that all center around like anti-women. Women don't deserve equal rights. Women don't deserve um, to have opinions. Women should continue to be like property. Like it's this entire belief system around this. And like that community that Pierre was courting and incels who we know are violent um, and have done violent things in our country, they're all part of this manosphere. So it's really terrifying that he had this linked in there and that there hasn't been more accountability around the choice to do that uh, for all women across this country. I guess the big question is, and we don't, we don't even have time to get into it, but I mean, how do we stop this whataboutism? Because every time it seems and I'm not just going to pick on Pierre here. I'm going to pick on all political leaders. Mm -hmm. When something is brought up, there's this whole I'm rubber, you're glue uh, conversation that seems to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and it's frustrating for the voters because we never get accountability and we never seem to get answers on these really hard questions. And then, of course, we're all moving on to the next story. So how do we what are your suggestions for making sure that there's accountability with this action? I think that the media honestly plays a giant role in this. Like politicians shouldn't be doing this. It's obviously a tactic used to distract us um, away from the real issues, right? Like they know they should answer. They're choosing not to. But I think the media needs to start pointing out what about it sounds a lot more like with a lot more emphasis, because if we're clearly saying in the article or the you know, newscasts that like, instead of actually dealing with it, he pivoted audiences to like communities to the other side or another issue. I think that might 
help point out the BS that we're seeing. And I think that's definitely part of it. And I think if we could start there, um, perhaps we can start forcing some accountability from our leaders to stop pivoting when they're being asked a direct question. I agree. Uh, I think we're all feeling exhausted from people not taking accountability and not answering direct questions. It's just uh, wearing us all down. Uh, so yeah. I encourage people to go to On Canada Project because you keep bringing up these big issues and asking the questions and demanding the answers. Uh, so if people want to find out more about this topic and others that are affecting everyday Canadians, uh, please go to at On Canada Project on Instagram to follow along. Samantha, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Waiting for a chance to set us free. Waiting for the day when you can be you and I can be me. As we go marching, marching, unnumbered women dead, go crying through. This week, we saw unions across the country unite in a show of solidarity not seen in years to push back against the Ontario provincial government's legislation that aimed to take away the bargaining rights of CUPE but also would have set a precedent for all workers if they got away with it. Thankfully, they didn't, and it's fair to say that women get a lot of the credit. With 60% of CUPE's workforce comprised of women and consisting of some of the lowest-paid workers in Ontario, they still stood their ground and forced the Ford government to back down and get back to the table. Joining me now to discuss what this all means and what we can expect moving forward is the fierce and inspiring Laura Walton, president of CUPE OSBCU. Welcome to the show, Laura. Hi there. I had you on the show, I think it's been a couple of years now, and I feel like you have been fighting this fight now. I have to ask you, what did it feel like on Monday to be standing on that stage with all of those unions from across the country standing behind you and, and telling people that the Ford government had backed down? What was that moment like for you? Um overwhelming. Like, I think for anyone who works in the labor movement, for many of us, we kind of grew up in the shadows of the days of action during the Mikey Harris era. I was in university at the time. Um, so we kind of knew about it. Uh, you know, we grew up on, you know, stories of the Winnipeg general strike. Um, and then, t you know, yesterday, that's the closest I've ever seen to realizing like, holy cow, we can do this if we need to. It was really something to watch, but I think it's important to say here that this fight or, you know, these negotiations are far from over. We're, we're, we're really right back where we're at the starting point. So I think the government has been throwing out some mis misleading numbers, you know, this 11 percent and all of that sort of, uh, you know, not sharing the facts. I want the facts. Let's share them. What are you guys asking yeah. for? So what we're asking for is a number of things. First of all, let's talk wages. Um, our workers are the lowest paid in the education sector in Ontario. We make on average $39,000 a year. And we're predominantly women, 70% women. Um, so we're asking for $3.25 a year, or 25 cents an hour for each year of the collective agreement. And people will say to me, well, isn't that just an extraordinary amount and et cetera? And I said, no, like, hear me out. It's $3.25 whether I make $20,000 or I make $40,000. What happens in, in our society, and it's, a, it's really kind of a patriarchal kind of way that we do things, is that we work in these percentage increases. And percentage increases mean that those who already make a lot of money get to make even more money. 
And those who don't make a lot of money make even less. And so there's this wide disparity that starts to happen between low-income earners and high-income earners. And unfortunately, that tends to be predominantly women, that tends to be predominantly racialized, and that tends to be predominantly precarious work. Um, and so for us, it's a real equity issue. And I'm so proud that our workers understood this equity issue, right? 55,000 were not all women. Um, but they got behind it and said, yeah, this is an equity issue. Let's get this fixed. And I think it's important, too, that, you know, we deal in these numbers like 325 an hour as opposed to 11 percent. And this is why, because 11 percent of 100,000 is a lot of money. 11 percent of 39,000, not so much. No. And I think unless you have that number of what you're, what's that 11 percent a part of, it's hard to grasp. So the 325, I think, is very important. How did you work on getting the messaging out? Because you really had um, the province behind you on this one. Yeah. And you know what? It's still an ongoing fight. Um, so we started by doing a wage survey. And when I say a wage survey, it wasn't about what did you want your wage to be? It was about what does your current wage mean for you? Uh, and so we asked questions like, do you experience financial hardship? Um, you know, have you been you know, able to pay your bills? Have you missed a mortgage payment or a rent payment? Um, and the stories we got back were amazing. It was a quantitative and a qualitative survey. And what we heard from people were stories like, I want to leave the relationship I'm in, but I can't afford to leave the relationship that I'm in. Um, or I, you know, work multiple jobs in order to make ends meet. If there were people that were saying, now 91% said they are experiencing financial hardship, at least one financial hardship. But in cases where people are like, I'm doing okay, they will say, I'm doing okay because my partner, and the majority of time it's a husband, is the breadwinner. And so this is, I'm able to work this job because I have somebody else supplementing the household income. And I think that that was very striking for us, right? To start hearing those real stories about how these wages actually impact the people that we represent. Uh, and that led to our 39,000 is not enough campaign where we came out and we said, this is, this is the story. And we took it away from me. It isn't about me. It's about the workers. And we really put their face to it. So we did interviews. There's videos where they're talking about the work they do. And you could hear the love of their job in their voice and the fact that they're struggling because they want to do this work, but they can't afford to do this work. And to me, that breaks my heart um, because you can't pay your bills with passion, right? You need money, unfortunately, in our society. Um, and so I think that has been really the secret to what we have done is we've unapologetically come out and said, we need money. And that's not a bad thing to say. I think it's, you know, it's time. And, and I think when you see people fighting back, it's because we make them uncomfortable. Uh, you hear the minister all the time say, well, they, it's, you know, inflated. It's because people are part-time. And I'm like, listen to yourself. If people are working part-time, it's not because they want to work part-time. It's because those are the only hours available to them and you want them to be in poverty. That isn't something that I think is a flex that this government should be using. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Laura Walton, uh, who is president of CUPE OSBCU. We'll be right back. Stick around. More What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. 
Okay, we're back with Laura. Laura, I want to pick up on this quickly because you mentioned uh, how many of your members were struggling. And one of the things that I read that came out of it was that you had a significant portion of people who relied on the food bank. A ton, yeah. Over a quarter of our members rely on food banks uh, in order to put food on the table, um, which is striking to me um, because I know that, you know, the minister stood up. I heard several ministers, actually, including uh, Candace Williams, who is, uh, sorry, Charmaine Williams, who is the, you know, involved with women's and social issues. And she said, well, when kids aren't in school, they're not getting fed. And it broke my heart because many of those kids that aren't getting fed are the children of our workers that can't afford to put food on the table. Um, so the idea of people providing these really vital services, you know, so vital that if we aren't there, the school's shut down, so vital that, you know, you'd be willing to charge them $4,000 a day for not being at work. Um, and yet they're seeking out food bank supports. Um, and somebody said to me the other day, like, you know, but what about strike pay? They're, you know, these folks are on strike pay. And I said, for many of our workers, strike pay almost equals what they make when they're at work. This isn't a hardship for them. Um, and I think that's really sad when you think about just um, people who do the public service work in our society should not be living in poverty. Okay, let's talk about what the future looks like then. What does it mean? I mean, you have QP workers here who clearly can't make ends meet. Uh, and if, if they can't do that and they have to leave, what does that mean for the schools? Well, that is the real reality that's existing right now. And so, you know, I encourage people when you're hearing about keeping kids in schools, schools are not just buildings where you house kids. Education is the people who actually support the kids. And so what's happening now is we have massive recruitment and retention issues. The school boards rightly admit, yeah, we can't hire people. And that's because the wages are so low and the working conditions aren't the best. Um, and so what we're seeing is people are leaving. And in order to have somebody there, they're now looking to unqualified people. And that's really problematic because the services that we provide are professions. You don't want somebody who's not qualified toileting or doing, you know, sensory exercises with students, or testing water. Like, this is a scary world that we would go into that we're just willing to take anybody to do this work. Um, and I think it's a real de-skilling that's happening as a result of the poor wages in this, in this group. Now, we are pre-recording this ahead of, our, of the show airing on Saturday. And so, uh, you know, it's Tuesday. Yesterday, Ford announced he was getting back to the table has that happened? Are you back at the table yet? So we are at the table. Uh, we met with our mediator this morning. Um, you know, he is pushing the government to provide this, this offer that the premier claimed today was on the table. We know that mediation is not a fast process um, and we're prepared for that. We're hunkered down here for as long as it takes. But, you know, I think it's time for this government to come to the table and be respectful. Um, you heard the government talk a lot today. The premier talked a lot about these low wage earners. It's time for him to put his money where his mouth is. Show the respect that these workers need. Uh, Laura, you uh, really have inspired, I think, a lot of people across the country. And I just want to come back to one point, though. And this is about the law that the government tried to pass and the use of the notwithstanding clause. What are your feelings on this? Why is this so dangerous? Oh, God, the notwithstanding clause. Like, let's be clear. The notwithstanding clause is only supposed to be used in an emergency situation, like life and limb situation. Uh, and what we've got here is a government that tends to use it as a way to say, you can't touch me. 
Um, and I think it's really, really important that people understand that when somebody uses the notwithstanding clause, you're talking about your rights. You're talking about interfering, in this case, with your charter rights, your human rights, and your rights to access the Ontario Labor Relations Board. That's problematic. And it sets a precedent, right? It is huge precedent. So what's next? Um, you know, I want to be able to put through a piece of legislation. I don't care. I don't want you to be able to take me to court around this. So I'm just going to put in the notwithstanding clause. Don't want to provide the services for seniors in long-term care. I'll just use the notwithstanding clause. Like, I think we need to be very clear as a society that that's not the route we should take. Um, but what gives me hope is that the minute it happened, we as people in Ontario went, uh-uh-uh, not today. And we joined together and we used our voices. And I think we shook off a lot of that apathy that has been in place since the pandemic and said, no, this is something I need to speak up for. And I really hope moving forward, uh, folks who have found their voices keep using those voices. Because I think if we can collectively come together, regardless of our differences, if we can collectively come together and recognize that there are certain things in our society that we need to protect, we'll be in a much better place. Um, I just wish that we had had that kind of awakening prior to the election. Well, you know, it, it, it definitely was late coming, but uh, I'm happy to see it. And workers, I think, realize this week that they definitely have power together to push back and speak truth to power. So I can't thank you enough for all you're doing, uh, not just for, for QP, obviously, but for all unions. And, uh, you know, you are just a wonderful uh, role model for, for women and girls across the country. So, Laura, thank you so much. Thank you so much. There's power in the people. what she said's ongoing partnership with New Roots Herbal, today we're taking a closer look at mushrooms, not as psychedelics or even as a side dish, but rather as a way to improve our health with supplements. Dr. Patricia Wu is a naturopathic doctor practicing in South Delta, BC, who focuses on brain health and happy aging. She has a special interest in heart disease, metabolic disease, and dementia, Alzheimer's prevention. In the clinic, Dr. Patricia enjoys educating and empowering patients to take charge of their health and life. She wants patients to feel confident in their own body's healing abilities and find healthy and sustainable habits that will improve their quality of life. She joins me today to discuss the power of mushrooms. We are hearing so much about uh, mushrooms anymore. It seems to be in every magazine article. I'm seeing it on social media. People are talking about it, uh, drinking it in their coffee. Uh, why are we hearing so much about it? So uh, medicinal mushrooms have been used traditionally for a really long time for anything that comes from anti-cancer or cancer prevention um, and just supporting stress and resilience. And now we're seeing it more in shelves just because like with all health foods, there, there are trends. And so there are new innovative ways for you to be able to extract the medicinal components in medicinal mushrooms that can now be available and found on shelves. And there's easier ways to consume it rather than trying to eat a bunch of mushrooms at once. There are countless varieties of mushrooms out there. Uh, what are the ones that we're focusing on that really help our health? So we're looking at the ones that um, contain something called polysaccharides. 
specifically beta-D-glucans. And so those ones are the ones that actually stimulate immune properties or immune um, cell activity within your body. And these are the ones that are really, especially with you know, the last two years, we're looking at something that will help support whole health um, without having lots of side effects. And do we look to mushrooms to improve brain health or is it our body or, or is it sort of everything? It's pretty much everything. There are certain mushrooms that can help with brain health. Um, some that I've studied, so reishi, for example, has been studied um, as a adjuvant therapy for chemotherapy side effects. And so it actually improves your quality of life when you're taking it on the side or, or um, in conjunction with chemotherapy treatment. Um, and then there's ones that do help with brain health, like Lion's Mane, which, which I love to use in clinic. Um, but they all have a general application. Um, and the most popular ones that you are seeing on the shelves are more for immune support. Excellent. So, I mean, it's not as easy as going out to the grocery store then and buying mushrooms and frying them up at home. There's a certain way to extract uh, what I say, suppose the benefits from them. And that requires a particular process, right? Yes. So there are so many different things that you can, or formulations and preparations that you can find on the shelves. Traditionally, people would have dried slices and they'd steep it in hot water for six to eight hours. And then um, after that, then you're able to drink it as a soup or a stew. Um, but now what we can do is actually use a hot water extraction process and you can actually measure out the percentage of polysaccharides or the percentage of even uh, beta-D-glucans, which are the medicinal component that we're looking for. Um, and then you can uh, dehydrate them and they're, they get encapsulized. So they're easier to consume. And that way you're actually taking a therapeutic dose of them. But then when we're looking at different varieties on the shelves, we've got the dried slices, we've got hot water extract, which is again, the best one. Um, they, there are some products that claim to be dual extract products, and that would mean that it's going through a hot water extraction and then a alcohol extraction. So the reason why we need a hot water extraction is because the polysaccharides are bound in this tight network called chitin. And so chitin, think of it like a popcorn kernel where the outside is really hard. So you have to actually dissolve the popcorn kernel to actually get to the fleshy juice inside, which is the medicinal component that we're going for. And with the hot water extraction, that, that's exactly what it does. With alcohol extracts, they're looking for something called uh, phenols inside the mushrooms. And so those are less immunostimulating. So if you're looking for something on the shelf, you're looking for a hot water extract specifically because you're looking for the polysaccharide content and the bioavailable polysaccharide content. If you're getting like a ground whole mushroom powder, that's really just a waste of money and, and a bunch of expensive fiber because the chitin is still there. Uh, so you really need to look at products that actually have the hot water extract. And then they might actually say the percentage of polysaccharides that the um, product contains. So I like that you brought that up because as with all trends, people jump onto the trend, the market is flooded, and then the consumer is confused. What do you pick? How do you pick? So let's walk through that process then. As soon as we walk in the natural health product store, what are we looking for? What types are we looking for? And what are we looking for on the bottle? So when you're going through the health food store, some people might still have dried slices and that's completely fine for you to purchase um, as long as you're actually steeping them in hot water. 
for six to eight hours. The only thing is it's a lot harder for you to consume that much amount of liquid as it is um, by getting just a capsulized product that has already been dehydrated for you. Uh, so you really want to aim for looking at a hot water extract product. There is one exception, though. Um, there are something called reishi spores, which have been um, studied. And so what they are, are the they're the mature cells of reishi mushroom, which is probably called the king of mushrooms right now because they're the most long studied uh, for longevity and stress and resilience and all things health related. Um, and so these reishi spores are all the mature act mature spores of the reishi mushroom that are already bioavailable. So if you're getting like an encapsulated or some sort of reishi spore product, then you don't need a hot water extract because they have um, already, or they don't come with the, the chitin that's protecting the spores. We're heading into obviously high virus season. We've got COVID, we've got flu, we've got common cold, pneumonia, you name it, it is out there ready to jump all over us. Uh, are there certain mushrooms we could be looking at right now to help boost our immunity? So um, again, king of mushrooms. So we're looking at reishi. <laughs> that's really, that's probably my top choice to go for. Um, also because it is so much more bioavailable. The other one that I really do love is called um, cordyceps. Um, but that one is a lot harder to find and it's a lot harder to produce. So the reishi, otherwise in, in Latin called Ganoderma lucidum, is probably the one that we go for. And I'm hearing a lot about lion's mane in terms of protecting brain health. Um, is this something that you recommend people take? Is this something we should be looking at daily? Uh, you know, is it just you take it once in a while? What's sort of the recommendation in and around lion's mane? So with any sort of botanical mushroom, we really want to be taking them regularly because that's how it stimulates the longevity. And, and, and with any sort of um, medicinal treatment, we're looking at three months before you really notice the effects. With lion's mane specifically, how it helps with brain health is that it stimulates something called nerve growth factor in the brain. Um, so nerve growth factor increases the growth of neurons in the brain and therefore promoting a long-term memory formation and and, and then we use it in, in dementia prevention. So this is something you would actually be taking daily. Um, and for something like uh, Alzheimer's or dementia with, with the patients that I do see with that, then we're looking at these things for basically lifelong treatment. I want people to be able to find you uh, at your clinic in BC. So where can they connect with you? And do you have social channels they can follow? So uh, the best way to find me is by my website, www.drdrpatriciawu.com. Um, otherwise, you can also find me on Instagram and Facebook. All right. Incredible. And for anybody listening who is looking to find uh, these mushroom supplements, you can find them with by New Roots Herbal in natural, natural food health stores across Canada. Uh, just go in and ask for for them uh, by name, cordyceps, reishi, uh, lion's mane, whatever it is you're looking for, they have it. Dr. Wu, thank you so much for joining me today. Man so makes me feel real. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. 
Where's all my soul, sisters? Let me hear your flow, sisters. Hey, sister, go, sister, soul, It's time to find out what's go. new in entertainment. And this week, we're getting our British on with uh, a little bit of a focus there on things from England, I guess. So let's talk about The Crown first. Well, everyone is so excited. It's back for season five. And I'm telling you, it does not let down. I'm almost through it. And things that came to light I had no idea about at the time and other things were were covered in a massive way over the top way as you know the British tabloids do and the American tabloids um, but you know I've lost quite a bit of respect for King Charles and the late Prince Philip you know they carried on just the way aristocrats have for millennia you know doing what they want to do wives be damned so and Diana is what a story. Elizabeth Debicki, who plays her, has her look and her mannerisms down like I've never seen. I've seen plenty of portrayals of Diana, but never one like this. So she's trying to develop a life and on her own because she's been completely shut off. She's lonely. She has no friends. Nobody visits her. Nobody talks to her. Uh, she discovers that she's being surveilled by her closest allies in, in her household. It's just heartbreaking, but it's not, it's not uh, saccharine in any way. This is a really tough portrayal of a difficult subject, and I love it. It's interesting that this is playing right now because we're also oh witnessing goodness. major turmoil in the royal family itself, mm. and who knows what their future holds. So it's interesting to be watching these two stories sort of running parallel beside each other right now in this moment. Yeah, watch for some interviews. I'm doing some interviews coming up, so they will be on the site ASAP. All right, excellent. Let's talk about the English with Emily Blunt. This looks like one of those shows, like, uh, you know, for me, Game of Thrones and The Walking Dead. I love those shows from, uh, you know, uh, they're purely, they're great shows. But to watch them, I have to watch through my fingers. That's what the English reminds me of. Well, she, uh, Emily Blunt also produces, and I, I'm kind of surprised because I'm sure you think of her as I do, sort of an elegant English lady. And here she is traveling. She's across. Mary Poppins. Yeah, she's yeah, and she's traveling across the American West Desert, looking for the man who killed her son in order to kill him. I mean, come on. She's on her own. She has a, a stagecoach driver played by Toby Jones. He's uh, pleasant, sympathetic, and wise, but he doesn't help her. He dumps her at a hotel with uh, Kieran Hines as a proprietor, um, who's just a vicious thug. So there's a lot of violence right off the bat. Um, however, a Pawnee comes along. He's, a, he's a, an escaped U.S. military man who wants to go the same general area where she's going. So they head off together, and the things they see will blow your mind. Just unbelievable white cruelty against uh, Native Americans and um, the legacy of that sort of thing. It's tough going, yes, and it's it spares nobody. Um, ultra-violent and you know it might not be based on fact but I bet in ways it is because we all know the the Wild West was lawless for until they got a system of law happening but I mean one person would cover hundreds of miles one sheriff so anyway very very engaging and where is that playing yeah that is on prime video all right excellent 
Uh, we're going to go a little bit softer and gentler now with Mind Your Manners, which I quite <laughs> was I drawn to because, you know, my mother sent me to etiquette school when I was about 14. So I was really drawn to this one. I love the concept of it. Yes. Well, my mom was a manners nut, so I got it from like being a baby. <laughs> but I learned things here. Um, now, this woman uh, from Japan, uh, what is her name? Sarah Jane Ho is a great host. She visits, each episode is dedicated to a different person that she visits. Uh, one is a sort of a rap uh, inspired lifestyle who decides she wants to be a lady. All of her clothes are slut clothes, her makeup, everything. And she convinces her over the course of the show to remove all that things. And she finds that she feels more beautiful and is more beautiful. She also gets her to lower her voice and speak in a gentler fashion. And she finds that, that things are a bit easier for her then, which is interesting. So she visits all these people, including a young American guy living in Japan. And he, he really benefits from her wisdom. Um, but you, you learn things like walking, like speaking, like deportment carriage that's so important uh, just all these things like you said before we did the show uh, what you learned in etiquette school gave you confidence to be in any situation and that's what you see over and over and over again and if there's one thing people need now it's to make life easier for others and that's also what etiquette is we're in such a tumultuous time now that this is like a, a lighthouse this show mind your manners and it's on Netflix. Yeah, the timing of it couldn't be better. Uh, all right, yeah. we're going to wrap it up. You've got all of these. Plus, you've got uh, a look at Wakanda over on uh, what she said, talk.com. Uh, but I just want to briefly just mention it's time. It's Christmas time. And those <laughs> movies are coming out. I'm so excited. This is all I will watch. I'm telling you right now. Christmas movies from now until Christmas Day. I know, right? <laughs> and so many channels are having like round the clock Christmas. Oh, bring it on. Bring it on. But the Santa, the Santa Clauses, I'm so thrilled to see Tim Allen back in this role. Uh, it's one right? of my favorite series. <laughs> so, so this looks really good on Disney. And what? You, there's another one with coming out with Lindsay Lohan. Oh, Lindsay Lohan. Yeah, my God, she's been through hell and back, right? But she said she missed doing Christmas movies, which was how she got her her uh, follow up to The Parent Trap. So she's starring in Falling for Christmas. So. You know, good times all around. All we need now is bakery. And I've got baking shows coming up. Wonderful. Perfect. Perfect. All right, Dan, we're going to have you back next week and we'll have more new shows. And I suspect some Oscar contenders in there next week, too. Yeah, you got it. Rooftop Garden is a new novel from the host of the Globe and Mail's The Decibel podcast, Manika Remen wilms which explores timely themes including climate anxiety and the political radicalization of young men. When her childhood friend Matthew goes missing, the protagonist Nabila travels to Berlin to find him and bring him home. The book explores the evolution of friendship over the years, how childhood experiences can define us, all interwoven with some of today's heavier topics. Manika joins me now to discuss. Welcome to What She Said. 
Thanks so much for having me, Candice. Uh, before we get to the book, I have to ask, you spent a lot of years reviewing books yourself. I'm curious how you feel being on the other end of that now. <laughs> it is it is different for sure, uh, but it but it is wonderful. It's really exciting to actually have the book out there. It's you know it's something I've been working on for about seven years, so it's a it's a long process. And it it feels really good though to actually to actually have it out in the world. These are absolutely not small subject matters that you weave into this book. I mean, climate anxiety, radicalization of young men. How much research did you do into those topics before you you wrote the book? Yeah, I mean, I had to do a fair amount of reading for sure. Like when we talk about stuff like like climate change, anxiety, and, and radicalization, those are obviously big topics. Um, but I mean, the good thing is, like, I, I work as a journalist, right? So a lot of my day to day is actually kind of dealing with with these bigger ideas and and like how they're kind of interwoven and how they connect to each other as well. So uh, there there was kind of some natural research, I guess, happening, and and that's par- partly why I wanted to to write about those things as well, right? Because these are things that are kind of in 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 the the discourse these days, these are things a lot of people are thinking about. So there was a fair bit of of background reading and and, and stuff that I would have had to I think early on, especially had to do. But it, a lot of it happened kind of naturally too, just as as reading and watching the news. And your main characters, where did you draw your inspiration for them? It's actually really hard to remember, honestly, where those characters come from because after a while working kind of writing, working with these characters, they just they just seem to kind of be people you've always known in your head. Uh, but I think it, it's just, you know, kind of going back to like looking at looking at different like how kids interact and how kids play, because I think, you know, part of the book is is when these two are, are, are kids, they're about eight years old playing playing in this in this rooftop garden. Uh, and uh, I you know I've done a lot of babysitting over the years. I've 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 uh, interacted with a lot of kids those ages. And you, you just kind of see how how the dynamics are there. And yeah, I think that's really where it came from. And you start, I was starting to think when I was writing this, yeah, how, how do you, I guess, when you have people who grow up, you see their experiences as an adult. I was thinking about kind of working back, right? What are the things that happened in, in your childhood or experiences you have as kids that kind of, you know, maybe signal, signal or, or, or reveal a little bit about the, the place where you end up as an adult? Yeah, there are moments in the book where, you know, they're, they're pretending that, you know, uh, the earth is, has completely changed and life is totally different. And I remember mm. that as a child, you know, playing that. It was, it's very uh, well written. I love that part of it because it did remind me oh, very much you. of my childhood and the, and the imaginations we have. How much of your own experience mm. did you draw into the book of, you know, places you've been around the world, uh, your, your views on what's happening right now in terms of climate and radicalization? Well, yeah. So, I mean, the book is set in Berlin, and my experience in Berlin did did for sure have a, a big impact on all of this. So, I was I lived in Berlin for six months in in 2015, and it was it was a really interesting time to be in Germany uh, because that was that was of course the year there were a lot of migrants coming over from um, parts of the Middle East, other parts of the world into into Europe and into Germany in particular. Uh, Germany brought in like a million people that year over the time that I was there. Uh, it was also the fall of uh, um, when the Paris attacks happened, and and so there was this this kind of this real palpable fear that um, in, in kind of an anxiety that was in in Berlin at the time in a lot of parts of Europe, and it was the 
first time I've actually spent that extended amount of time in Europe, and I was I was just noticing, you know, how different, how close everything is, or how how you're close to different parts of the world, I guess, in Europe as opposed to North America. I think honestly, just physically, geographically, right? If you're if you're in Canada, you're you're far away from a lot of other places. And I was feeling when I was in Berlin that fall how how close everything kind of seemed to one another. And so there was a lot of stuff, you know, as I'm saying, the, the, you know, a lot of people coming into Germany, there was kind of the political rhetoric that was kind of ramping up at that time, too. And then the, the fear with these attacks that were happening, that was, uh, th- that just, it, it made me start to think about how these things are kind of interconnected and how, how uh, I guess, how people respond to that, that kind of fear as well. And now that you've written your debut novel and, you know, are you, I mean, I know I've talked to a lot of authors on the show, so are you already gearing up for the next one? <laughs> yeah, that's always the question, isn't it? It's, uh, I, I mean, I, I've got some kind of early stage ideas, I think, for the next one, but it's it's such a, it's such a process of, of, I think, brainstorming at first, right? So I've got some, I've got some very loose ideas, uh, but uh, it, it's taking a while to come together. But the thing is, I don't think I'll ever be kind of able to stop to stop writing. I, I know I'm always going to have something going on in the background in terms of, of fictional writing. So it is it's it's in the very, very early stages, I'll say. Well, let's let you enjoy the moment of the rooftop <laughs> garden for now. Uh, where can people find the book and where can they keep up with you? Yeah, thank you so much for yeah for for suggesting that. So uh, the book is available now uh, in a lot of independent bookstores. It's also available online. You can order it from Amazon. Uh, you can order it from Indigo. Uh, you can also order it from the publisher, Harbor Publishing, and Nightwood Editions online. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, you, I'm I'm there at MainikarW, uh, and uh, you can also listen to the Decibel, which is the the Globe's daily podcast. You'll hear that uh, five days a week, Monday to Friday. Incredible. Thank you so much for joining me today. I I have to tell you, I'm halfway through and I am riveted. Uh, Fabulous book. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Have a story for what she said? Email us at 1059theregion.com. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Netflix's The Crown, a fan favorite series inspired by the royal family, is back with season five. Peter Morgan's ridiculously popular show has a new cast this year as we enter the 90s. Imelda Staunton as Queen Elizabeth II, Jonathan Price as Prince Philip, Elizabeth Debicki as Princess Diana, Dominic West as Prince Charles, Leslie Manville as Princess Margaret, and Johnny Lee Miller as John Major. They spoke with international journalists this week, including What She Said's Anne Brody. Let's listen to a bit of it right now and then head on over to whatshesaidtalk.com to catch Anne's full review and listen to the entire interview with the cast. Elizabeth, uh, were you nervous to play someone so iconic? And was it a role that you could easily walk away from at the end of the day? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes and then no. Mm. Uh, Yes. Did you say, was I nervous? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I think we, I would, it would be fair to say we were all nervous. Mm. Um, 
It, it felt like, and the show does feel like an enormous responsibility. But like we were saying, we are supported by this network of people who understand that pressure and want us to be able to do it the best we can. Um, it's, it was a, it's an enormous challenge, I think, and, and you have to, it's an interesting process for me, I found, and it took me some time to understand that you're bringing your interpretation to Peter's interpretation of this person, mm. but then the people watching this show come, like Jonathan was saying, with such attachment and memory and a sense of ownership too over these characters in a way. Not only from the people who've played them before, but also from their living memory and their history. So you have to leave a kind of space for that and it's sort of a dance between all those things. And it's a beautiful process, but it's also very challenging. Yeah. Um, and very rewarding, I think, too, because we get to work with each other and, and get to do these wonderful scenes. And, um, what was the second? Walking away. Well, you're still oh, walking away. There is no walking away. No. Um, well, we're all still in it. We're still walking <laughs> yeah. through this, you know. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I, think, I, I, I think of it as sort of being under the waves in a way, and I mm. think we're still swimming. <laughs> I'll, you know, I could probably answer that question six months, and I don't know how easy yeah. or hard it will be. I don't think terribly easy, but... Yeah. You mentioned um, dance, and this is a lovely question that, that's coming for you, Leslie. Can you please talk about uh, the scenes with Timothy Dalton? Yes, well, Timothy Dalton uh, comes in to episode four and plays Peter Townsend, who, you know, I'm sure everyone knows was Margaret's uh, erstwhile love. Um, and, uh, yeah, we had to spend quite a lot of time learning to do a nice little dance together. But it's very sweet. It's a very, it's a very good device because uh, of Peter, on Peter Morgan's behalf because obviously she's going through, a, I, th I think, and it can be interpreted through my research and through what Peter's written, she's going through a lonely chapter of her life um, and uh, 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 transitioning into a an older phase of her life, which for her is difficult because she's been so glamorous and iconic. And how do you how do you marry all of that with yeah. then this kind of odd life on your own? But um, so he brings him back in, and you see them together, and it's 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 so lovely. But and you 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 it serves, I think, a great purpose of highlighting maybe what she could have had hasn't had and subsequently and now doesn't have at all yeah so it's um it's very it's a very clever device but those scenes are really charming and you get to and she gets quite animated and um sparky and fiery and fun with him again so it's nice to tap into that side of margaret yeah. in that episode um we've got a question from lily in china for you johnny um who says um, very much loving your John Major. How do you feel about it, and what is the essence of bringing this character to life? Jeez. <laughs> the essence. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so I, it, yeah, I, I did a lot of, you know, reading and watching of him, obviously. Um, but what was cool was, so, I mean... <laughs> I grew up in a very like socialist household, a very left-wing household. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty like lefty, right? So we had, and, and, and as, a, as a youngster at the time, a young man, you know, we thought we knew who John Major was and what he was about, you know? And his, 
he got a lot of uh, flack back in the day from, you know. And so the more I learned about him, the more I began to like him. And we had a lot of similarities. We're from the same part of the world. Uh, he's from Worcester Park, I'm from Kingston. Wow. We both went to state grammar schools. And uh, so all, uh, we, we had like, you know, theatrical parents. And um, I got all the, you know, so I had all these things in common. I'm oh my gosh. And, and then the more you learn about the work that he did, and, and, I, and I, I had a lot of, uh, my respect for him grew massively. Mm. Um, so that's what you're trying to do, really. What anyone's trying to do when you're playing, whoever you're playing is you're trying to like, inhabit someone, you're trying to sort of fall in love with them, right? Yeah. So um, there's always a fascinating journey. Um, and especially with somebody I think who's, who was very misunderstood, actually, and, and, and who I, uh, I respect greatly. Yeah. <clears throat> I think someone who clearly understood and through his dramatization of the character is, is Queen. And that's a, a really brilliant relationship to watch across this season, the two of you. Was that fun to, to work together on that relationship? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. It was fun. Yes, it was fun. <laughs> For more of this interview with the cast of season five from The Crown, head on over to whatshesaidtalk.com to catch the full 45-minute interview. it for What She Said this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to catch past episodes and extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with another What She Said on 105.9 The Region.